Welcome to episode four of Everything Hurts, a podcast covering everywhere the life sciences meets the biological sciences, hosted by myself, Dan Quintana, and James Heathers. I'm that guy. What is on your mind, James? Um, well, I think you have a profound moral failing. Okay, okay. Uh, you continue to write and publish meta-analyses and... It makes me want to hit you with a broom. Why? Uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of things I don't like about them. Would you like to, say, explore that in detail over the next 45 yeah, minutes? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Dear me. Well, I, I, tell, you, I tell you what might be more fun. Why don't we, we have a tendency, if you've listened back to our previous episodes, to skip explanations for things. And that's bad. Let's not skip an explanation this time. Let's start with you, yourself, explaining what a meta-analysis actually is. Okay, well, simply put, a meta-analysis is a way to objectively synthesize a body of research there. Is it, it's a there. You, it's supposed to have some kind of emphasis. Yeah. Objectively synthesize a body of research. What are you, an Emerson, Lake, and Palmer? <laughs> okay. You take the results from a series of studies on the same phenomenon and you reduce them to no, some not... kind of combinative mathematical measure of effect. Yeah. And you combine the effects to make an overall effect, which is qualified by what? Well, you're using a, a, a summary effect size like Hedges G, Cohen's D. Look, it's more about the... What's the alternative? The alternative is doing a narrative review where you kind of get together what is the... what You know, what's this area of research? What do the results say? Yes or no? And that's just incredibly subjective. So meta-analysis gives us an objective way of doing that. Okay. Um, I agree with you partially. Okay. There's an excellent paper that was about salt in hypertension that was published. I don't know if I sent this to you because I don't think you're particularly interested in salt or hypertension. Um, what it said was, if you do a narrative review from one of two parallel research streams, there's a series of different studies that you're more likely to cite depending on which one you happen to agree with yourself. Sure. In other words, there's a lot of literature that says salt gives people high blood pressure. Ooh, it's bad for you. And when you work within that tradition, you cite all the research that agrees with you. There's another smaller but probably more aggressive research tradition that says salt has no bearing on hypertension whatsoever, or at least a, a, a dramatically decreased one from what the other people are saying. And the people who work within that research tradition cite all their own research, and they don't actually cross over the divide between <laughs> two takes on what's essentially pretty, the pretty same Pretty much topic. like any, any research field then. Yeah, so when you do a narrative review, another term that you've just managed to not define because you're a wicked, naughty socialist <laughs> gentleman, a narrative review is simply trying to summarize in text all the relevant results that have happened in the field. Well, you cherry pick. Yeah. Well, it's completely unavoidable to some degree because there are some things that you're more familiar with and you have to be extremely systematic with 
everything that you've uh, everything that you've read, everything that you can get your hands on. So the tendency, of course, is to support whatever dominant narrative that you think is best. Now you said that meta-analysis was a way to be objective in the face of large amounts of information that you need to summarize. I would say something that's similar to that, but it is a modification of the language, and it's a way to be less subjective, not a way to be objective overall. All right, let me qualify that by saying it's probably a better way to define it is that it's a transparent and objective way of doing it. Because because you have to publish all the decisions that you've made. Yeah, exactly. So on, tell us about that. Yes, I mean, there, there are ways that you can do objective narrative reviews where you you set what the search criteria are going to be. So going back to your salt and hypertension idea, um, if you were to speak, uh, pick specific search terms, for instance, um, any study which includes uh, salt or sodium or hypertension or blood pressure within, within the text in the abstract, and you were going to include all those studies, all those studies within your analysis, then you are actually going to reach um, both sides of the divide there. And you can do that both from a narrative perspective, but you can also do that from a, system, um, a, a meta-analytic perspective where you actually take the effect sizes and then you can say with more statistical certainty whether there's an effect or not. Mm. Well, you've convinced me. Let's knock off early. <laughs> but no, why aren't you convinced? Seriously. Well... I'm going to use a phrase now. I'm going to watch you carefully here on the video that the nice people in the world can't see. And I'm going to use a phrase that everyone uses when they talk about this. Yeah. And it's something that we argue over really how this is supposed to be managed and the Uh extent to which it occurs, not the fact that it occurs in the first place. And the phrase is garbage in, garbage out. Yeah, I thought you were going there. Of course you knew I was going there. It's like, we've, I mean, I don't think anyone listening to this is, is under the impression that we're having this conversation for the first time. <laughs> right. So what is the, the general principle that I'm trying to represent with that is the fact that when you take a very large body of literature, it doesn't just have a series of results that are heterogeneous. Mm. It has very difficult to quantify elements of whether or not it's a good or bad study. There are many, many individual qualifications for any given piece of research as to whether or not it makes any sense in the first instance, whether or not it's being correctly conducted, whether or not it's methodologically appropriate. Now, the amount of time that you can spend trying to make sure your own work is correct and to make sure other people's work is correct when you're doing a review is definitely not reflected in your consideration of whether or not a study should be in or out of a meta-analysis. In other words, I might spend a very long time making sure my study makes sense. If I review two papers in a month, I spend probably about the same amount of time on them. When you write a meta-analysis, you are now reading, I'll make it up, 40. Yeah. Right, so what you're hoping is that the general association that's behind these studies will aggregate to such an extent that the amount of signal that's present is greater than the amount of noise. But if you aggregate enough of these things over enough periods of time, 
then they will have a center of truth where you, you have a conclusion that makes its way over some kind of line. Well, let me speak on the, the quality bit. If you're doing a meta-analysis, obviously you have some idea or you'd, you'd hope you'd have some idea about the state of the literature and what kind of questions you're asking. So then you would also know what would constitute what a good quality or a bad quality study would be. Uh, some things are pretty universal. Obviously, a double blind study is uh, more valuable than a single blind or an open label study. So then you actually set these. Um, there, there are two approaches here. You can actually set specific inclusion and exclusion criteria, which you can um, usually you can actually get from the abstracts. So maybe you'd only set we're only going to include studies which which are double blind, for instance. So then by doing that, you can globally actually, you know, look at what sort of quality studies that you're actually including. The other alternative is actually doing a looking at quality as a continuous variable. Now, there are a lot of uh, study quality tools that you can actually use to actually rate and give an, give an objective rating. Dif different fields have different tools or you can actually make up your own and that's fine. But at least you're, at least you're objectively actually saying this is the tool and this is how I'm actually qualifying and you include that as an attachment, this is how you actually qualify the quality of a study. Yeah? Right. Okay. So, so, okay. That's, so that's a process. It is a process. Hmm. And this comes back to my idea that if you're actually, and this is the way most meta-analyses are going, if you're actually pre-registering your protocol and actually setting this is how I'm going to assess quality, then people can actually say, okay, from the very outset, they had this idea they pre-registered their search term so they couldn't actually change it and make things up afterwards. Mm -hmm. They also pre-registered um, their, uh, their, their quality quality tools. Sometimes you can use these quality tools which are specifically set for um, randomized control trials. Other times they're not going to suit your research question. I've done both. Um, mm -hmm. From recent memory, I've actually basically what a lot, of, a lot of people do is they get these tools and then modify it to better suit their own research question, yeah? So then you have this pre-registered idea and you have a measure of stutter quality. So there's, there's two things. Firstly, you have inclusion-exclusion criteria, so you can completely exclude the crap. And then you can have this continuous measure of study quality, so you can actually see, okay, we have our summary effect size, we've calculated this. Did study quality actually moderate? Do the really bad studies have these enormous effect sizes? Is there any relationship between these two things? If there is then you have a problem, but at least you found the source of the problem. But if there isn't, then you can actually say, well, study quality didn't actually make a difference in the summary effect size. Is that still a meta-analysis when you're starting to grade other people's work on the basis of quality and then compare it to the size and variability of the effect size? Because you're not really combining them to form a conclusion anymore. There you are. You're combining them. A normal thing in a meta-analysis is actually figuring out what moderates the, the effect size. Typically, you would look at um, the mean age of participants, um, some sort of uh, okay, some sort so, of method. Yep. Right. So what you're saying is that uh, you've successfully proved that bad research is bad. Yeah. I mean, but then I'm, you trem no. I'm tremendously impressed with that as a conclusion. Obviously, <laughs> no. you can tell. I mean, you, you, you I, again, you can't see it, but I am actually jumping up and down while I'm saying this and clutching at my cheeks. It's <laughs> it's it's a sight to behold. No, but then you can see what is the effect because your whole thing is, oh, you know, if you're including um, bad, if you're including bad quality studies, you're actually going to get a result which isn't as valid. But here you can actually test. Maybe you're going to find out, yeah, cool, garbage in, garbage out. But then you can actually test what is the effect of that. Mm, no, this, this is a, that's a reasonably good point to handle. But here's the, here's the part where it gets deeper. Yeah. 
you're making a measurement of quality on the basis of what is being reported in the paper and what you can and can't see. How many times have you asked someone for their data from a study that's been published? Well, we're in the process of doing that now for a current meta-analysis. Mm, okay, so you're actually getting the actual raw data. No, the not, not, not you're getting not the, the summary statistics or are you getting the actual data? Not the actual raw data because we don't need it for this particular approach. But well, go on. Go, that, go. that must be tremendously emotional for you. Um, <laughs> I'm sucking him deliberately. As I wish well, at some point in time I should record your reactions to all of this. <laughs> uh, it's mainly smiles, I have to say. I told you before that he's tolerant, he is amazingly tolerant. Um, I've, I've asked for enough people to send me the guts of their study to have a pretty reasonable blanket distrust of a lot of research, especially within the kind of field that I see you guys doing meta-analysis in. And I get the feeling a lot of the time that the error that you can't quantify is error that's in service of setting the result up in the first place and everyone's familiar with how you take random error and then you kick it about a bit until it makes your result do what you want the result to do yeah um now your obvious answer to that and it is a pretty good one is pre-registration what you should do is instead of uh making your own analytical decisions continuously until you get the result that you're after which that's but i think most people who do that do it unconsciously this Absolutely. is what happens when you lie to yourself you're convinced that your research is going to work so you keep kicking it until at some point in time something falls off the side and you go there it is i knew i knew that result was there the entire time Look at look at my quiet, humble genius. That all it took was forty-five different analyses. I tried all the patterns <laughs> of covariates, and uh, look at that. The result just falls out. We knew it was there the whole time, aren't we? Clever. This, of course, is what you do if all you care about is publishing and you don't care about finding stuff out, which makes you a hack and a ruiner. Now, do you think? How often do you think that happens? I'd say it happens a lot. Yeah, now, how much of that? How much of that's being rolled up into your hedges G and repackaged? Because right now it's starting to feel like a bad mortgage derivative instrument where people are taking mortgages that can't be paid by people and then pushing them through financial instruments and turning into something you can invest in. Okay, well that's where we actually start looking at publication bias. Yeah, and looking at the whole body. Of literature so okay. there are one way we can do it is by looking at these funnel plots mm. and then mm. you can actually see oh um, you've done it again yeah then you, you uh, you're even worse at this than me now you have to be very conscious when you say something like funnel <laughs> plot no, it's a funnel and it's a plot okay yeah exactly no <laughs> one is passing through an alternative dimension where all of these things are already predefined to listen to us have a conversation about that either people are finding out about this stuff for the first time in which case it needs to be defined or they already know in which case they're not listening to us talk about it in the first place define <laughs> are you sure this isn't for you james all right so <laughs> <laughs> All right, so funnel plot. On the vertical axis, we have some sort of measure of error, yeah? 
typically it's just standard error or standard deviation. On the horizontal axis, we have a measure of effect size. Um, so by looking at these funnel plots, we can actually, um, the central axis of the funnel plot, the thing in the middle of the funnel is the summary effect size that's calculated. Then you can actually see where these effect sizes, which are the studies, fall on each side of the, um, of the, the summary effect size. Now, if you have a field which is full of studies which, um, where, where there's a potential publication bias, you'll actually notice that this plot is asymmetrical. There's more studies on one side of the plot which actually support whatever hypothesis they're pushing and less studies or missing studies that you'd expect on the left side of the plot. Now, you can actually do statistical tests to figure out how much asymmetry there is in these plots and that gives you an indication that there's potential for publication bias. Now this is actually quite um, quite a common procedure and pretty much mm. all meta-analyses do this. Some yeah. are bad and look at the plot and go, hmm, that looks symmetrical, um, no publication bias, which is a really bad approach. Um, but you can actually do formal statistical tests to look at the asymmetry in these plots and look at as a whole is there potential that there were studies that should have been published but weren't? The old file draw problem. So you can actually test for the likelihood that um, this area of research that you're looking at is biased or not. Mm. And, and uh, there's... And, 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 go on. And, and. <laughs> and there's even ways that you can actually see um, whether this area of research was actually um, has a lot of studies which just sort of fall around the 0.05 significance line as well. Another thing you don't need a meta-analysis to determine. Um, yeah, that's that's true. That's true. But it's nice to actually visualize and see what the heck is going on in this field. And with some areas, it's, um, yeah, you look at these plots and it's startling. And you can actually see, wow, there's like 30 studies in this area and 20 of them magically fall around 0.05. Yeah. So, you know, there's a way of just analyzing that where you don't have to go around calculating summary effect sizes and being clever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, I thought you'd be interested in that. I thought maybe I could save you some time and you wouldn't <laughs> have to write a 97th meta-analysis. <laughs> so, yeah, there are, ways, there are ways you can actually test for these things. Okay. Yeah. Still not convinced? So, well, still not convinced with... That, that funnel plots are a good way of uh, correcting for bias. You know, you're not correcting for bias. You're testing for bias. That's, now, there are ways... Yeah, mis misspoke. Now, what, yeah. People, what people try and do, there are ways that... Uh, there's, a, there's a method called the trim and fill method mm -hmm. where what you do is you can actually statistically impute these, mis these so-called missing studies. Um, and then what some people do is they impute these missing studies rerun the analysis and say well if we actually we have publication bias you know this field has evidence of publication bias we have refilled in uh, we've filled in these missing studies and we still get a positive effect size yeah you're actually making doing an analysis on studies which may or may not exist so it's it's better it's better thought of as a sensitivity analysis to go okay hypothetically if there were these studies here what would happen but some people actually take it too far and say, well, if we have these hypothetical studies, we still find that, um, you know, effect X is significant or whatever. Pre-registration. A pre-registration, I mean, the one of the central principles of academic publishing 
because I mean, in a in a weird kind of genre sense, what you're publishing is non-fiction. It has to be real. It has to be an adequate description of a process. So honesty is absolutely central to this. It's a, I mean, we trust the fact we we don't go and look over people's shoulders as they record data. We trust people to report what they've done and the way they've done it in a way that we would consider to be honest. Now, when you screw that up and you either make your data up or you change your data to make it better fit an existing hypothesis or you fail to report things that would qualify your data or any of the, the other versions of sort of all the way from fraud to sort of zero calorie dishonesty, skim dishonesty, dishonesty light kind of stuff, which is far more prevalent than the fraudulent stuff. All of these things rely centrally on the ability of a researcher to be honest, right? Yeah. Now, what is to stop you from doing your meta-analysis in the exact way you want, then submitting your pre-registration and saying, I've made a series of decisions in advance that I'm going to follow to the letter when I get round to running my meta-analytical technique. And then waiting a few weeks or months and then publishing the thing that you've already done. Well, basically, I mean, you're talking about you're trying to stop people from lying, and you've given them a protocol to stop them lying, which is capable of being lied to. Yeah. Is it a problem? Look, it is a potential problem, but you could almost say exactly the same thing for clinical trial registrations. Although it's a bit oh, different. Of course you can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I the mean, only difference <laughs> there clinical being trial, is... clinical trial replication problems and stuff are way up there with everything else. It's just, you know. Yeah. And obviously, you've got a massive profit motive hanging over the top of most of them. So, you know, if I run a study and uh, it gets published in some reasonable mid-tier journal, everyone goes, that's fantastic, James, and a few people read it and everything works very well, but your clinical trial works. Look, millions what, what... or billions of dollars hinge on decisions made in clinical trials. Look, one thing that you can do is that, like clinical trial registrations, these uh, meta-analysis registrations are time-stamped. So you would say in January 2016, we're going to do this thing and we're going to start the search in, uh, in February or March 2016. Mm -hmm. Within your meta-analysis, you actually say, we used this exact search string within this search engine between these dates. And these dates being between 1990, for instance, and June 2016. And then you run the thing. Okay. So, so if... Yeah, so if you're te technically speaking, you shouldn't be running these analyses until you actually have the registration. Yeah, mm -hmm. do the registration, and you say we're going to begin. We're going to begin the search in a, a month after this is registered, and then or or six months or whatever. So you have a little bit of a check and balance there. They can actually test. Well, we didn't actually do the search until afterwards, and if someone really wants to, they can trundle over to PubMed, put the search terms in, and do they find the exact same uh, returns for their search? What about being able to edit, remark on, or alter someone else's pre-registration? Um, depends where you actually post your pre-registration. Of so, course, but what I'm saying is, like in principle, if, if I've pre-registered a study yeah. and the protocol, which is allegedly done beforehand, is very favorable to a conclusion that I want to represent, if that's published somewhere and 
other researchers come past and criticize my rather sort of home advantage published series of terms that's going to make the paper when it's uh like in in the absence of actually having the work there present with the analysis pathway it's going to make the work look very bad yeah, you might I mean, want to consider changing it after it's pre-registered is my point that's well, one the of the is, things that you can get feedback no you can do that absolutely and um the whole point is I think, um, you know, I'm sure that in the space of doing um, this meta-analysis I'm currently working on, what we're going to finish up with is going to be a little bit different than the actual protocol. But the whole point is, in the final paper, we will say, these things we followed to the T, these things we actually changed because we got feedback. Someone said, hey, did you think about this during the course? And other things we just didn't even think of until we actually did the actual analysis. So at least there's a lot of transparency to say, much like a clinical trial, when you actually report them, you say, this is exactly what we hypothesize or this is our exact approach and this is how we deviated and this is why. Exactly the same as a clinical trial. Mm. It's transparency. Yeah, and I can't see you smiling because your face is behind your pop filter. He's smiling again. All right. Well, let's move on to another problem with these okay. things. They're boring. <laughs> they're boring they're proper actual dishwater dull deadly boring they are beating my head against a white wall in a white room until the end of time boring they are as boring as the cultural homogeneity of your adopted homeland boring <laughs> boring boring you're taking a series of things that already exist a result the thing that people are looking for and you're spending all this time and all this effort aggregating all the results that say really are more or less the same thing. Do they ever turn up something that is unusual or exciting? Or is this simply just a way for motivated people with the right software to expand their own CV? There are times where you actually find results that you didn't expect. Um, Has some- that ever happened to you? Uh, not with what I'm doing, not with my past meta-analyses, no. How many but, of them were there? 75,000 million? <laughs> no, but it really depends on the kind of question that you're asking. The current one that I'm working on, I genuinely don't know the answer and I'm genuinely going to be surprised what we find either way. And there are hmm. some cases where, yeah, it, it's not what you expect or where there's, you know, genuine differences or genuine mixed results and you want to find out okay what what is the summary effect size here let me put it this way like a a lot of these meta-analysis that you read are in your field already you know this literature but what about someone who's actually not familiar with a specific field and you want to get a really quick lowdown about okay what's the story with this uh this area of research rather than reading that much is it that much more of an investment of time to read some of the major work that will say what the meta-analysis says I mean, well, is that all you're really doing, aggregating things so other people can save time? That's not exactly scientifically bold, is it? It's uh, it's it's one of the it, reasons that it's we're doing useful. It. it has utility. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It has it'll utility. get it, it has utility because it'll get cited a lot. No, but but will but people think, think you're special? Will you be offered a sweetie at any point? <laughs> think about it this way: What if you genuinely? A lot of times, meta analyses are used to actually direct treatment policy. Does this drug work? Is this drug, you know, raising raising blood pressure, for instance, rather than kind of going, yeah, you know, we, we think it does. At least you can objectively get all these studies and say, yep, it looks like this treatment works um, or it doesn't work. Or it looks like this treatment only works in males or only works in females. 
Do you find okay. all do, do you find all reviews boring? You just don't re, you don't read reviews ever. Well, if you're outside of your own, if you're outside of your own area, um, I, yeah, look, a research summaries not not really as interesting as the foundational work. I mean, look, it, I suppose it depends on what you want as an outcome, and I think of everything from terms in in. in in terms of the fact that I'm going to do research in or on or around something. Yeah. Maybe if I was a clinician or I was someone who was a policy advisor or I was someone who was out of formal scientific research but inside maybe maybe I was a sociologist and I mainly did qualitative stuff and I wasn't, you know, there's an awful lot of people who don't have access who aren't equipped to go and, you know, Oh, just go and read the foundational material, said James, you know, arrogantly, as everyone failed to find which study was relevant in the first place and then failed to understand all the technical rubbish that goes into them. Yeah, look, I only believe you, I mean, you, you know this because you're used to me winding you up because it's, it's basic, basically like tennis for me by now. Um, it doesn't work, but I, I, I still enjoy Give it a go. Yeah, exactly. I mean, everyone can play tennis because you can swing a thing. So I know I'm not going to be able to wind you up, but uh, it is fun to try. Um, I believe about 60% of what I've been saying so far, and I've been uh, being needlessly critical because it's fun to me. It's fun to watch you explain yourself. Um, <laughs> you, you know, you know, but me, me having emotional problems with meta-analyses is not anything like a criticism. It's just me essentially being difficult. So no, but the thing is, a lot of the, a lot of the problems that you have is is basically the main criticisms criticisms that people have. And yeah, I, I know, the, I know, but it's just I could have done it in a nicer tone of voice, but I think it makes a less interesting podcast <laughs> if I do that. Um, let, let's can we switch horses for a second? Yeah, yeah. Why don't you tell me about it? Why don't you tell me about a really good one? I know there's lots of them out there. Yeah. Half of them written by you or one of your <laughs> disgusting friends. Um, <laughs> What's a what's a really what's a really good one? We can think of one where the result was either novel or important or set some kind of agenda. What is one of significance? Look, when it comes to actually finding out ones that are important, there are a set of guidelines that you can actually follow called the Prisma guidelines. Now, a lot of people say they actually follow the guidelines but don't do it. Now, these guidelines include, um, you know, did they actually. Um, did they report the populations? Did they pre-register their study? Um, do they report moderators? Do they report measures of bias? Any studies that actually follow this properly and do it is going to be a good meta-analysis. Um, and the thing is, like, there isn't that many, at least within psychiatry, there aren't that many good meta-analyses because firstly, they're not registered and secondly, they don't. they say they follow PRISMA, these PRISMA guidelines, but they don't actually do it. Um, and there's a free idea for someone for, for a paper. How many meta-analyses actually follow Prisma guidelines? Um, well, they, so all, they all cite them, certainly. They all cite them and they all say they're doing them. Um, but, um, you know, it's a little most... bit like American politics and saying you're an evangelical, you know? It's, you know, do your, do your actions. Yeah, everyone, your... everyone speaks in tongues on the weekend, but then they, they, they go home at the end of the day and punch their cat. I mean, <laughs> yeah. at least by the look of most of them, I, I think they do. <laughs> Yeah, so do they genuinely follow these Prisma guidelines? Are these 
just Google it. You can find them. And it's a set of, uh, I think it's like 20, 20 questions. And you have to, what you should be doing is actually submitting these guidelines with your meta-analysis should always be uh, part of the supplementary material and you go through and there you can actually see, is this a good quality one? Mm, okay. Yes. Let's talk about something I like more, which is the idea of not aggregating other people's ridiculous analyses and mistakes and general problems, but aggregating data from multiple sources. Mega analysis. Mega analysis. Now, not only do we have to get this out of the way immediately, that's a much better name. <laughs> it's more it's, metal. It's a lot more metal. It's a lot more a Saturday morning Japanese cartoon with poor translation. Uh, mm. It's which obviously is awesome. Yeah, uh, much better name. What's the story there? Look, mega analysis is getting the individual data points from a study, and rather than aggregating the uh, the summary, rather than aggregating the effect sizes or some sort of measure of variance, you're actually getting every single data point. So, say you have five studies with uh, 100 people each, you've got those 500 data points. And they mm -hmm. create a study. Now, this is great in theory, but yep. practically speaking, <laughs> your chances of asking someone, yeah, can I have all your raw data? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty slim. And that, that's why, like, I, uh, I constantly. But one, I've a, a qualification yeah. of that. This that depends crucially on the area. Yes, and I was about to say, I'm envious. I work with a lot of genetics people mm -hmm. and I'm envious of their field for a number of reasons. Firstly, um, you know, their sample sizes are just mind-boggling. Yep. Um, and secondly, they've managed to build these really big consor consortium dealing with very specific questions and they actually pool all their data and they're essentially doing these mega-analyses. You have... Um, like the the consortium that um, that uh, our lab's part of is is part of like a it's like a twenty lab consortium and they have these research questions. Each lab maybe has about two thousand three thousand people combined. You're getting these numbers like over a hundred thousand. You need those sort of numbers when you're doing genetic analyses. Yeah. Um, so man, the genetics people they've just they just got it right. Um, so yeah, like you, it totally depends on the field to do these mega analyses. Hmm. Well, if you try doing one with fMRI data... Um, no, that's getting better. Uh, yeah, no, no, yeah, no. Yeah, look, it's, right. it, I, I, don't, I don't agree but, with you there. Uh, well, look, I'm just thinking of it from a practical perspective. You've got very large files. You've got stimulation parameters and uh, presentations that are not always completely identical. You've got some very profound differences in the philosophy of analysis and people who argue about them all the time. And you might even have stuff like proprietary file types not being available between analytical methods. I mean, well, that, that's it's, why these a, it's an awful lot of numbers that need to go into a computer somewhere. Yeah, but you know what a lot of people do? It's very old school. They put their data on an enormous hard drive and mail it. Yeah, it's probably quicker. That, I mean, that, what's, that, what's the file size? What are we talking about here? Like, it's enormous, like terabytes. And that, that, that's what they do. Uh, that that's what our that's what our lab does when they're actually yeah. collaborating with other people. Like, oh, we've we got something in the post. Oh, it's a hard drive full of you know a, yeah. a thousand samples. But with planning, people have solved this. Of course, you know scanners are slightly different, but they try and standardize it as much as possible. 
And, uh, and then, you know, if there are differences, they include that as a potential covariate within the studies. Okay, um, good. Yeah. Now, now I've got you. Now I've got you into a corner. If all these people who are dealing with serious computational problems and colossal amounts of data can do it, yeah. if you've got some crap data, like a normal heart rate series, <laughs> why are people who work in biological psychology so incapable of emulating the best case practices from other areas of the biological sciences when it's so much easier to do so? I have no idea. Look, here's one possible solution. Uh, imaging is expensive, so most people have sample sizes around 20, 30, 40. Heart rate is a lot easier and a lot cheaper to collect, so it is actually realistic to get larger sample sizes of, say, in the few hundreds. Maybe what's going on here is people think, I don't need bigger sample sizes. Why bother? This is easy enough to collect. Where the imaging people go, no. But you are writing meta-analyses about aggregating all of these results together at the same time. Yeah. And this is data that you could probably, I mean, if you did a meta-analysis and you had 25 studies and you wrote to all 25 authors and they were all published over the last 15 years, how much data would actually turn up? Um, I would say seven years would be a better cutoff. 15 is the cutoff for clinical trials and seven for everything else. Um, so it's look, not eggs. It's not eggs or milk. I don't know what this idea that data goes off. You no, mean that's the mandatory <laughs> time that you need to keep it for? It doesn't mean they won't have copies of it. Yeah. Um. Look, response rate fifty percent. Fifty percent is good. There's a uh, a paper by a Dutch group who are looking at um basic errors in uh normal statistical analyses does this match with that does the t value match the p value etc yeah. who went through huge amounts of the literature looking for um looking for errors and um introduced uh, found, found a bunch of errors and then wrote to the authors and said i want to see your data set because as far as i can tell your analysis is full of spiders and flies yeah but that's pretty aggressive though no i don't i don't think they phrased it quite <laughs> no, like that no it doesn't it matter wasn't though but it's me it's writing the email it's the this whole is why idea. I work with other people. <laughs> it's but look, when whenever we email people asking for their for extra data, ninety percent of the time they're like, "Cool, that's an interesting question. We would love to contribute." And then from what I think, genuinely, about a week later, oh, we had a look, and that first author left the lab, or we don't have that specific data. Well, we uh, better wrap it up for today. Um, if you like what you hear, make sure you rate us, give us a rating on iTunes. That will help other people find the podcast as well. If you don't like what you hear, um, pound sand and never listen to us again. You are obviously or a send, person send with us, extremely send us, poor taste. Send us an email at everythinghurtspodcast.gmail.com and tell us why. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, or... <laughs> I, I, you have to. I don't mean half of those things. Please love us. <laughs> or you can um, you can contact us on our Facebook page. Uh, just search Everything Hurts. Uh, or you can find us on Twitter at, at Hurts Podcast. Bye for now.